Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come today and we come in the name of the powerful, wonderful name of Jesus. God, we pray that you would speak this morning to our hearts, that you would help us to understand more of who you are and how you've revealed yourself, what you've called us to, who you've called us to be. God, we pray that you would bless this time, encourage us, correct us, comfort us, direct our hearts and minds, God. We are so grateful for all that you've done, and even more than that, for all that you are. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So today we begin uh, the series that you asked for. It. It's a series of, of messages responding to questions uh, or to passages that you uh, asked to be addressed. Um, hopefully, uh, is my prayer that uh, even though we are addressing questions that come uh, from you, that God is still at work. God is still directing the topics. God is still directing the uh, the way it's presented that it's his word that we're drawing from. That's always uh, my desire as I bring God's word to you. And today we're going to uh, address the issue of the Christian in the Old Testament. And this is a question that comes up um, a lot, a lot more than maybe you would think, um, in terms of Christians trying to just deal with the idea of the Old Testament. Because we call it what? We call it the Old Testament, and we follow what we call the New Testament. And so because of that, and because there's just some strange things in it, right? I mean, let's be honest. If you're reading the Old Testament, there are places where you're reading and you're like, that's weird. <laughs> okay, what is going on there? What, 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 what is this story trying to say? What, is, what are these people even thinking? What are these people doing? There's, there's some stuff there that's just odd. And we have versions of the Bible that are New Testament only. You know, we have uh, we have whole denominations who say the Old Testament's not useful to Christians. And so that that raises the question: What is our relationship to those books, to those thirty nine books, Genesis through Malachi, that uh, we call the Old Testament? And for me. Growing up, I never really thought about it. I never really questioned it. It was there. It was the scriptures. We learned from it. We went on. But during my first um, stint, my first job as a uh, youth minister at a church out in West Texas, in Morton, Texas, which is barely in Texas at all, almost in New Mexico, um, I was called there. Just uh, I was 19 years old when I was called. Um, and I was excited. I was on fire. You know, I was ready to serve. I was ready to minister. I was ready to lead all those things. And uh, as a youth minister there at the church, um, it fell to me to preach in the pastor's absence. When the pastor had a vacation or whatever, that's when the youth minister steps in and gets to preach. And so first time that happened, I, I got up and, and I preached a, a sermon that I thought was pretty good. I can't tell you today what the passage was. Um, that was a long time ago, and my memory is not what it used to be. Um, but it was from the Old Testament. And after the service, 
I went back to the back of the church, as is my custom, and uh, was shaking hands with people as they're coming out. You know, everybody's coming by. And, oh, Brother Tim, you did such a great job. Just, just soaking in all that uh, love from the congregation. I was really appreciating. But I noticed there was one of our older members, one of our older men, was, was standing just a little ways off. Um, just kind of watching, you know, it was clear that he wanted to say something to me, but he didn't want to say it with everybody else around. And so when everybody else had cleared out, and sure enough, he approached me, and he came up to me, and he said, he said, Brother Tim, you did a good job. You know, you, you preach with passion, you, you preach with authority, it was, it was a really great presentation, you did a really good job. But I just have to say, and I just want you to know, that God will never bless a sermon preached from the Old Testament. And I was like, what? <laughs> the first time I'd ever heard anything even remotely like that from somebody. Um, and and I was just like, you know, what do you say to that? You know, I'm 19 years old. This, this, this older gentleman who's probably in his 70s at this point, you know, got to show respect on it. So I'm just like, well, thank you. <laughs> and went on, you know. But as I began to prepare and as I began to, to, to study uh, more there in college and then on into seminary, it, it dawned on me that while most people wouldn't say those words, that really kind of is an attitude we have toward the Old Testament in terms of its usefulness. I mean, think of, think of sermon series and think of what preachers generally bring. Typically, a preacher is going to preach from the New Testament, and most likely he's going to preach from Paul. Because Paul's really kind of systematic, and he gives you the points that you're supposed to preach as it is. Um, you only hear sermons from the Old Testament when um, perhaps it's a psalm, or when they're preaching on some prophetic text, Jesus. You know, Christmas you might hear some read something from Isaiah, or somebody's preaching on the end times. They might pull from Daniel or something like that. The Old Testament really is just kind of ignored, and. I think that goes back to its strangeness. I think it goes back to, you know, just really kind of dealing with texts that, that we don't really immediately see how they apply to us. But this morning I want to look at the, at the Christian use of the Old Testament, the Christian, Christian approach to the Old Testament. I want to do that through the lens of a New Testament passage. And I think that's important for us to do because um, – I think you're kind of preaching to preaching in circles if you use an Old Testament passage to defend why you should read the Old Testament. The New Testament, I think, is a better place to go. So we're going to be looking in the book of Hebrews this morning, in chapter 1. And I think probably more so than any other book of the New Testament, the writer of, of Hebrews draws on the Old Testament to make his point. And he starts out in verses 1 and 2, kind of presenting where he's coming from. And, and this, this thesis statement, this idea, this, this expression of God's work in history and God's uh, communication through the Old Testament, I think kind of defines things for us in terms of how we should approach, how we should understand the Old Testament in relationship to our faith. He says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, however, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians, Jews who have converted to Christianity, but now they're really starting to doubt 
whether they made a good choice. Persecution starting to set in. Some of them have lost their family and their friends. Some of them have lost their jobs because when they converted to Christianity, uh, the the Jews that were around them, the Jews that they had previously been a part of, said, you've abandoned us. You've abandoned the heart of who we are. And because you've done that, we can't relate to you anymore. We can't, you can't be part of the family anymore. We, we can't do business with you anymore. And so Christians are dealing with that. These Jewish Christians are dealing with that, and they're like, maybe I should just go back to Judaism. Maybe I should abandon Christianity and just go back to Judaism. It'd be a lot easier. You know, it'd be a, a much simpler situation for me. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to say, no, 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 no. No, you don't want to do that. And, and the whole book is him making the case for why you don't want to abandon Christianity. And the way he starts is by talking about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he says that. He says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Now, you need to understand as well that when the writer here uses the phrase prophets, he's not just talking about the 16 individuals that we identify as the prophets. He's not just talking about you know Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Hosea and Amos and Obadiah and all those guys. He's not just talking about them. He has in mind the entire Old Testament. The Hebrew view of the, the Old Testament, the, the Jewish view of the Old Testament, was that it's all prophets. How does the Pentateuch, the, the first five books, how does it end? No prophet has arisen in the land like Moses unto this day. What's it saying there? It's saying that everything that Moses has written in those previous five books is from a prophet. Okay? Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, those are all called prophetic books in the Hebrew canon. They're not called historical books like we do. They call them prophetic books. The former prophets is the, is the official title they give them. So really, you're talking about the entire Old Testament when the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke through the prophets. Okay. And he's saying that these words, these expressions that we find in different times, in different places, expressed different ways, verse 1 there, are all what? They're all words from God. And so that's our starting point when we start talking about the Old Testament. That's our starting point when we start talking about how we relate to it, that they are words from God. They are God's words. And if they're God's words, then, then they are what? They are accurate expressions of who God is. Okay, so the first thing is they're authentic. They are authentically God's word. And I don't know about you, but as a believer, as a Christian, my one of my presuppositions is, is that if God says it, I need to listen to it. Okay, if God has communicated it, I got to be responsive to it. There's an old bumper sticker I remember. It was real big in the '70s. It said, uh, "God said it. I believe it. That settles it." It was it was everywhere. Well, I I, I think we kind of need to correct it and take out that middle statement altogether. God said it. That settles it because that really is the truth that we function under. That, that's how we need to operate. God has communicated in the Old Testament. They are authentic words. The writer of Hebrews elsewhere in, in, this, in this book calls them true and faithful. Okay. Second Timothy uh, 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. 
when Paul wrote that, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. So he himself says it's it's God breathed. Okay, so they're authentic, but they're, therefore they are also what? They're also authoritative. They have a claim on us. They 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 communicate how God functions in relationship to humanity. You have the ideas of of sacrifice. When we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, where do we where do we even get meaning for that from? We get it from the Old Testament where the sacrifices were carried out. You talk about righteousness, right standing with God, walking with him in the path of life. That all begins in the Old Testament. Grace itself is an Old Testament concept. They are therefore God's word for us even if they're not necessarily God's word to us. He was addressing a specific time, a specific situation, a specific culture even, but they still have application to us. Therefore, they are a part of our lives. But how can that be? When you read some of these scriptures, how can that apply to me? I mean, I could pull out a a lot of examples of passages that you look at and you're just like, really? But I'll, I'll just pull out a law, one that... Uh, I use as my example as an example in my classes, but it, I think it really kind of illustrates what I'm talking about here. Leviticus, you have a law that says you shall not eat a calf, or excuse me, a goat kid cooked in its mother's milk. Okay, it's found actually both in Exodus and Leviticus. You shall not eat a goat cooked in its mother's milk. And I read that, and that the first thing that comes to mind is, okay, no problem. <laughs> I got that law covered. Okay. I'm not even tempted by that one, to, to, to break that one. Okay, But the second thing I think is, what? That seems like a weird thing to, to say. You, you, okay, I can understand you shall not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. I can understand all those. But don't eat a goat cooked in its mother's milk? What on earth? What is it that's going on there? And what is it that, that, that those sorts of laws teach us about the, the Old Testament and how it relates to us? Well, what that sort of law teaches us and, and what we need to understand when we're dealing with all of the law of the Old Testament is that we function in relationship to it according to the principle that it proclaims, even though we don't carry out the practice. Okay. In other words, we're free today to eat a goat cooked in its mother's milk, if you wanted. I don't know why you would want, but if you wanted, we would be free to do that. Just as we're free to wear uh, clothing that's of two different types of material, Leviticus 19 says don't wear clothing made of two different kinds of material. Okay, We're free from those things. We'll talk about why here in a minute. But let me, let me stay with the, the point of the principle here. When we look in archaeology, when we look at the cultures that surrounded Israel at that time, what we discover is that when couples got married, that they wanted their houses to be blessed. I mean, don't we all? We, we all want to prosper. We all want to succeed. We want children. We want all of these sorts of things. And the way the surrounding cultures handled that was through a magical rite. They would bring a goat and its mother's milk to a priest. 
the priest would slaughter the goat, then cook it in its mother's milk, and then feed it to the couple. And the belief was because they had done this right, because they had done this exercise, that they were now going to be fertile. They were now going to have lots of kids. They were now going to be prosperous. Okay, They had done this ritual that ensured their security. But that's not how God wants us to relate to him. That's not how God wants his people to respond to him and function with him. He doesn't want us doing little rites and rituals that manipulate him and and make him bless us. He wants us what? He wants us to come in humility and ask for his intervention, ask for him to, to bless us. And what did Jesus pray? Not my will, but your will be done. That's how God wants us to approach him. And so that's always been who God is. This is the, the truth of the Old Testament. Is that re- always, it reveals who God has always been. And so you come back to the law. And what is God saying there? He's saying to Israel, I know your neighbors do this act to try and ensure fertility. I don't want you functioning that way. I don't want you operating in a way that tries to manipulate the outcome. I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith in me. I want you to come to me in humility. And additionally, I want you to be different. I want you to look at life and be looked at by those around you as a people who's distinct, who's who's different than everybody else, who's not doing those sorts of things. And so now, all of a sudden, this law that seems so abstract and so odd and so far out in left field, suddenly it has real application to me. Because God says the same thing to me. He says, Tim, I don't want you trying to manipulate the situation to the best outcome for you. I want you bringing it to me. I want you trusting me. I want you beginning with me. And I want you to be different. I want you to be a person who people look at and they see me. And so we follow the principle even though we don't necessarily follow the practice. Now, expanding on that, there's three types of laws in the Old Testament. Three types of expression that we find God communicating these principles. And and we function in relationship to them in terms of practice based, based upon how close the principle is to the practice. Let me just give you an example. The Old Covenant, there are First, you have the Old Covenantal laws. These are laws that you find in the Old Testament that are relating to the priesthood, to sacrifices, to the temple, to, to ritual cleanness. Okay, When you read through the Old Testament, you, you read these laws about um, when you have to wash and what washing you have to do. Okay, You read these laws about um, the priesthood, the steps that they have to take to be priest and, and all these other things. Now, clearly, we don't obey those laws today. We don't carry out those practices today. We don't sacrifice on the altar today. It's not a part of who we are. We don't do ritual cleansings today. Okay. Why? Well, we don't do those things because, as the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Jesus has fulfilled all of those things. Jesus is our priest. 
Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our temple where we meet God. Jesus is the one who cleans us from those things that make us unclean. And so the way we relate to God in, in those particular passages, in, on those particular texts, is to, is, to, um, is to view them through the lens of what Jesus has accomplished. When I read of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, Leviticus 1 through 6, when I read the whole burnt sacrifice there, the, the fact that that, that's, that whole burnt offering is an expression of complete commitment of the giver to God. How do I carry that out? How do I accomplish that? I accomplish that through Jesus. Jesus is the only one who allows me to give all that I am to God. Okay. A second type of law are the civil laws. These are laws that were connected to Israel's governmental structure. Okay. That, that functioned in a way that, again, we don't function today. We don't have a priesthood today. We don't have a king today. We don't, we don't relate to God that way. It's not, our lives are not intertwined with obeying these sorts of laws. But what do they do? They proclaim a, a truth about God's priorities. When you read in Deuteronomy 17 about, uh, about the, the laws concerning the king, and what the king's going to be like. What you see are, are laws that express, that communicate that God doesn't want oppression to be part of who we are and how we function. He has indeed created us for freedom. He wants us to, to lift up the oppressed. He wants us to, to address those who are hurting. He wants us to, to avoid this sort of hierarchical situation that often functions and operates. We see God's priorities there, and we apply them to our lives. The third type are, are the character laws, and, and these are the laws where the, the practice is very closely intertwined with the principle. These are laws such as the Ten Commandments, laws that are linked to God's character and to our character. These are laws that we find Jesus in the New Testament restating, reapplying to us. And every one of the, the Ten Commandments except one is applied to believers in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The one that's not is the Sabbath law. Why? Because that's a ceremonial law, and Jesus is what? He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. He is the one that delivers. But all the others, they're what? They are communications of character. The very practice itself communicates the principle. Why do we not kill? Why do we not murder? Because God has created us in his image. And to take a life is to go is to be an affront to God's image. There's a very close connection there. And it, it plays out in Jesus' own teachings. When you get to the, the murder versus what we say to people, when you get to adultery versus looking on a woman with lust, when you get to uh, these other laws that are expressed that way. It's very clear that the principle and the practice are, are intertwined. And so we take these words that are from God and we find ways to apply them because they communicate who God is. They relate to us His priorities, His authority, His position in our life. The second thing we see in the book of in this passage here from Hebrews about these earlier words is that there is a connection between the earlier words and the final word that is Jesus. 
He says that, that God has spoke in earlier times this way, but now in these last days, He's spoken through His Son. And the heart of that, that, that comparison, that contrast, is that there's a connection between the two. Scholars refer to this as salvation history. Okay. That we are connected to our history. And the New Testament is connected to its history of the Old Testament. When I was in seminary, when I was studying, uh, I had several jobs. And one of the jobs that I had was uh, I was a screener at the, at the airport. This was before TSA and all that, uh, when it was independent contractors and all that. And I, I got to work the little machine, x-ray people stuff, all those other things. And, and at the time, it was a very multicultural setting. People from all over the world were, were, were doing that job. And I was working alongside people that I probably would never have interacted with any other place. And one of the person that I was working with was a Hindu. And, and I was sharing my faith with him and communicating, you know, who Christ is, those sorts of things. He, and he said to me, he said, why should I accept your religion as truth when your religion is only 2,000 years old and mine's four or 5,000 years old? Mine's much older. Doesn't that bring some level of authenticity? And I said, I said, you misunderstand. My faith, the Christian faith, doesn't just go back 2,000 years. It goes back to creation. It began when God spoke the world into existence. It is part of the plan that he's always had. When you read, when you talk about the Old Testament, when you talk about Judaism, you're talking about God's plan for salvation playing out within history. It's him communicating. It's him relating who he's always been. And it's ever bit as committed to and grounded in grace as the New Testament is. Case in point, the central event of the Old Testament is the Exodus. That's what, that's what defines everything else that happens in the Old Testament. The Psalms, the wisdom literature, all the prophets, they all look at the Exodus and say, that's where we became special people. That's where we were saved. That's our redemption. That's an expression of who God has made us. Well, let me just ask you, which came first, the Exodus or the law? Did God come to Israel enslaved there in Egypt and say, here's my laws. Once you get those down, I'll come back and we'll pull you out of slavery. No. He saw them enslaved. Exodus tells us that he felt, he experienced what they were going through, and in that, in that empathy, in that sympathy, he stepped in and he rescued them out of Egypt by his strong and mighty hand, the Scriptures say. And in Exodus 19, you see God meeting with Israel there on Mount Sinai, and he says to them, all the earth is mine, but you're my special possession. You're my people. I have redeemed you. I have rescued you. Then, Exodus 20, he says, because you're my people, this is how you ought to live. The law came after the salvation, after the deliverance, after the redemption. It's always been about grace. It's always been about God's work, not ours. And so to see that is to, is to see that there is this connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. That's 
important for us to understand as New Testament believers that when Christ came, there's a whole lot of things that just stayed the same. Who God was, what his character was like, what his desire for relationship looked like and how that played out. The very fact that he desired a relationship with humanity. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we see this string, we see this connection to who we are. We see much of our identity there. And so that finds application in our life. But we also keep attention in place. We, we keep a, a, a perspective in place that communicates that what? That the new covenant's not the old covenant. That the earlier words are not the final words. There is a difference. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The writer of Hebrews goes on to communicate, to relate, that there is a superiority, there is a finality to what Jesus has accomplished. There, there is a purpose in this journey. That Yes, there is this salvation history that's taken place, but in connecting with God, you don't go to earlier parts of the salvation history. You go to the final word. When I was first starting to, to look for car uh, as a as a young adult, and there were some new new cars, new makes that were coming out at that time. My dad pulled me aside. He said, "Son, never buy the first year of a new model. Never do that. Let them get the kinks out. <laughs> Let them see what's going wrong and those sorts of things. Always wait at least till the second or third year of that particular model of car." Why? Because there are things that need to be worked through. And presumably, the later editions are going to have worked through those things. In some ways, that's kind of what we're talking about here. You don't go to the earlier expressions when there's a final expression, a better expression. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying all throughout his book. He's saying Jesus is the final word. Chapter 8, verse 13, this is what he writes. He says, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The new covenant, the, the agreement we have with God through Jesus, has made the old covenant non-existent. That's what the writer here says. It, it, not in the sense of, of, of replacing it, but in the sense of completing it. It's brought it to its full expression. The two cannot exist side by side because the new covenant has rendered the old one useless is another way of putting that. So what has changed with Christ? Number one, Christ has abolished barriers. He has collapsed things, that walls that used to exist. In Galatians, Paul says, in Christ there is no longer male nor female, there's no longer Jew nor Greek, there's no longer slave nor free. What does Paul mean there? Obviously, he doesn't mean male and female genders no longer exist, because in all sorts of places he addresses the responsibilities and the roles of 
male and female in marriages and, and other things like that. So what does he mean there? He means that in Christ, those barriers have been taken down, and it's our responsibility as believers to speak to that, to address that, to, to communicate that as part of the gospel. And this plays out in terms of women's rights. This plays out in terms of racial issues and so forth. The gospel speaks to those things. A lot of people have bought into this perception of the gospel that it's, it's just about saving souls and really doesn't have any impact on, on society and how society works. That's not a biblical idea. A biblical idea is that the gospel itself transforms how we treat each other, transforms how men view women, how men uh, relate to women, how the races interact. And part of the problem we're facing right now in our country is because the church has abrogated our responsibility to speak to those issues. We haven't been a source of healing. We haven't been a source of reconciliation the way we've been called to. In fact, sometimes the church itself has been the source of racial division, of gender division. We've been the source of oppression. And so now we enter into a situation, into an environment to where we're frightened. We see the, the upheaval. We see the struggles. We see the fights that are going on. And we're frightened by that. And we should be. Because those sorts of issues address from a context that's not grounded in the love of Christ, that's not grounded in the gospel, that's not grounded in the transforming work that Jesus Christ alone can, can be, are going to be driven by anger, are going to be driven by wrath, are going to be driven by, by a new form of inequality. They're, they're trading one form of oppression in for another. Christ has transformed these relationships. And so as we, we deal with the Old Covenant, we do so through the lens of the priorities that Jesus put on it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Those become the defining characteristics of how we function and operate in life. Not only has Christ abolished barriers, he has empowered people. Paul highlights in the book of Romans in several places how the law has constrained us. And this is where sometimes we get confused as to exactly what Paul's view of the Old Testament was. He viewed the Old Testament as instrumental in salvation. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about how the law has been a tool that God has used to illustrate that we don't measure up to God's righteousness. How the law has been something that God has given us to express the, the, the reality that we are warped by sin. He says there that, that I, I wouldn't know that coveting was wrong and I wouldn't be tempted to covet if it weren't for the law. What's he saying there? He's not saying the law is problematic. He's saying sin is problematic. To put it in a modern context or a situation you've all faced or come across, I'm sure, you're walking outside. You come upon a wall, and on the, sign, on the wall there's a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch. 
What's the first thing you want to do? You want to touch it, don't you? You want to see, is it really still wet? You wouldn't even looked at the wall. You would have walked right past the wall. You wouldn't have considered the wall if that sign weren't there. But the sign has suddenly drawn your attention to it, and now you have to touch it. Paul says that's what the law, how the law has functioned. We wouldn't have considered our fallenness. We wouldn't have realized how far away from God we really are without that sign there saying, these are what's wrong. But that's, the sign there causes that sin to, to, to manifest itself. And that's helpful because you don't look for a solution until you know there's a problem. That's what Paul's saying there. The law was God's means of, of pushing us towards a solution because it's only in the law that we discovered there's a problem. But Christ did what? Christ overcame that. And that condemnation that's found there, he gave us a, a means of functioning apart from it. Chapter 8, right after chapter 7, where this has all been expressed, says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ's work has rendered it so that there is no punishment. There's no condemnation. We are freed from the laws, as uh, Caleb read earlier. For freedom, we have been set free. And so the new covenant helps us to look at the, the old covenant and say, I'm not constrained by those things. Those practices don't need to find expression in who I am because Christ has made me clean, because Christ is my sacrifice, because Christ has done something miraculous and empowered me. And because he's empowered me, he has freed me from the weight of sin. I can live with a clean conscience. And this is such an important perspective. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant did what? It required the, the people to come back continually to sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews says. Why? Because Hebrews chapter 9.22 says, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so we knew we had to come back over and over and over again. And he says, we had to come back over and over again because Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats is not capable of taking away sins once and for all. It doesn't have that kind of power. But he says, Christ's sacrifice not only cleanses us of the sin, Hebrews 9.9, 9, it perfects the conscience. It cleanses the conscience. It takes away the shame. And so the Old Covenant helps us to see how amazing the New Covenant is. Helps us to see how full and complete and thorough the New Covenant is. And so that's how we read the Old Testament, is to see what Christ has accomplished that wasn't accomplished before. It's to see how amazing the Incarnation is. It's to see how powerful the Crucifixion is. It's to see how transformative the Resurrection is. To see Israel continually return and re repeat the same sins over and over again is to begin to understand why Christ had to die on the cross. The Old Testament teaches us these things. 
so that we can walk in the power that the New Testament, the New Covenant, the new relationship we have that Christ has brought can function in our lives. But we need to learn to function and walk in that new power. When I was a kid, I used to I used to like going to the circus. And I didn't like clowns. I still don't like clowns. Clowns freak me out. Okay. But I, I like the animals. You know, seeing the animals do the tricks that the animals did. But my favorite part of the circus was the trapeze. To see those people just wild abandon, just flipping through the air and grabbing this pole and grabbing that pole and catching each other and throwing, you know, just crazy stuff. And I, I used to sit there in just amazement. Because, first of all, I ain't getting up on one of those those little bars that way, that far up in the sky. No way. And if I am there, I'm certainly not letting go to fly through the air so someone else can catch me. Not going to happen. I don't trust anybody that much. Sorry. But why can they do that? Why can those trapeze artists do that? Well, I think there's two reasons. Number one is their ability. They practice over and over and over again. But number two is the net. And the net really is what makes the ability possible. Because even if they don't use one in the show, which sometimes they didn't, they certainly used them in practice. So that if they missed, they fell into the net. And I think a lot of times, or in a lot of ways, that's how grace functions. For the Christian. That number one, grace grants us the ability. Why? Because grace is also that net that catches us. And so I can be daring as a husband to love my wife in radical ways, to allow her to be all that she's supposed to be, the freedom that God's given her, the, the abilities God's given her, and not be fearful and not be um, overbearing about who she's supposed to be because God's made us both free. The grace God's given me allows me to show grace with her. I can be a better employee. I can work and do what's right and do things the right way because grace has freed me to do that. And yes, sometimes I fall, but grace catches me. I don't have to be fearful about that. I don't have to be fearful about the failures or the misses because grace is there. But see, here's the thing about that illustration, and I think it's very helpful. If I walked into a circus tent and saw a bunch of people just laying in the net, I'd have no way of knowing they were trapeze artists. For all I know, they're just taking a nap there in the net. And the very tool that helps the trapeze artists become daring and, and, and live and, and do things that are beyond my imagination, in that case, has just become a, a, a bed, a resting place that doesn't really help me identify them at all. And I think that's how some Christians try and view grace. Or some people try and view grace. That it's something that we can just kind of lay in and relax in. 
and there's nothing transformative about it. There's nothing that, that causes our abilities to be visible about it. And just as I would question whether or not that's an actual trapeze artist laying in the net, sometimes I think we need to realize that people are right to question our Christianity if all we're doing is just laying in the net of grace. Grace is not meant to be a bed upon which we rest. It's meant to be an empowering capacity to live a radically different life, to be daring, to take risk in how we treat people and how we love people, people who hate us, people who, who, who say things about us that aren't true, that are not kind, people that abuse and, and, and attack us. God has called us to love. How can we possibly do that? We can only do that because of the saving work of Christ that's expressed it, that is expressive of the grace of God that allows us to be a different kind of person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that you just help us to live in that, to walk in that, to grow in that, to not be content to just lie around, but instead to pursue greater, more amazing things. Not because of our ability or our commitments, but because of your amazing grace and the work that you've done on our behalf. Go with us, Lord. Direct us according to your purpose and plan. In Christ's name, amen.